Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast, where every week, Danny and Maura Vega discuss topics that help families live a healthy and active lifestyle with their little ones, including nutrition and training, peaceful parenting, education, and mindset. To stay up to date, make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast and check out the blog at www.fatfuel.family. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at dannyvega.ms, at fatfueledmom, and at fatfueledkids, and fatfueledfamily on YouTube. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Fat Field Family Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Vega, and I'm, I'm joined by my <laughs> lovely wife, Maura. How are you, my love? Good again. <laughs> <laughs> because you I just feel like I always say good, of, you just but your... I actually am good right now because I have coffee. Yeah, you made me And I had coffee. time to eat my food, which was good. Let's talk about what we're doing with coffee. Just real quick, what are we doing? Like the new... The two things that we're doing. The two new, new things, yeah. Uh, we stopped grinding, like pre-grinding it at the store. So we're grinding them fresh every day. I think this prevents mold, probably. Mold and stuff, um, and yeah. We should be keeping it in the fridge, though. You should put the bags, the bags in the fridge. And we are mixing. mixing with decaf. Half organic coffee, half but organic But we've been doing decaf. that for a little bit because I needed to control my caffeine consumption. But I like coffee, so I just drink it for the taste a lot of the time. So, yeah. But then I'm like, okay, I overdid it on the caffeine. And my soon, cortisol shot. Soon someone's going to tell us about why, you know, even organic decaf is bad. And I'm willing, oh, I'm I'm sure. willing to listen I'm sure. to that because I, I know. know. Eventually, I'm sure it'll be one day where I'm like, I'll give it up. You <laughs> Eventually. Know? I'm not ready, though. Um, We wanted to make you guys aware of our Patreon. Um, If you guys go to patreon.com slash family. you can not only support our show and help us um you know we we pay hundreds of dollars a month for our um editing but we also offer a lot of cool things to our our patrons so we have like quarterly gifts and we're going to start doing some more stuff and we're going to actually crowdsource that for you guys we're going to ask you guys what you would like to see more of because we really want to make this patreon um more interactive and we haven't done much with it so um definitely check that out um we're super excited because today we're talking Talking with someone that has an interesting background. It's not your your typical background. Um, this week's guest is Dr. Stephen Hussey. Stephen is a doctor of chiropractic, functional medicine practitioner, speaker, author, and health coach. He helps people create high-performing hearts, and he specializes in helping those with heart disease, type 1 diabetes, and autoimmune conditions. He works with a variety of clients from in-person to online coaching, and he's also the author of a book called The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephen Hussey. What's up? Not much. How are you? Oh, we're good, man. We're, we're excited to Thanks have you on. on i was i was looking for your email and um i was like darn i don't know if i have his email and <laughs> and then i look and i see there was um you emailed us like in may about getting on the show i'm like oh my gosh well at least we got we, at least we got him on now <laughs> yeah we got around to it that's good <laughs> it's good to have you man How, how's it going not too bad, not too bad. Uh, yeah, things things going well. Um, just trying to spread my message. So I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, we love your message, and we think that there's some some cool um, additions to the conversation, especially around cholesterol and heart and root cause that we really want to get into because you have a very unique perspective. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, well, let's get into the show because we have a lot to talk about. But we always lead off with the question: What is the most critical problem you are currently trying to solve? Um, well, I'll cheat and go like personal <laughs> and then like in, in world too. Yeah, we can okay. do too. That's fine. Yeah. Um, personally, it's it's finding time. Um, so <laughs> oh I have, yeah. yeah, I have recently started to, uh, you know, try and spread my message more with when the book came out last November um, and uh, reach more people. So it's it's trying to find the time to, you know, do things clinically um, and then, you know, the health coaching on the side and then also spread the message, create content, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, time is huge. And then 
uh, on a on a bigger, um, probably more important uh, level. I mean, I started out like with the book I wrote, um, which is not necessarily about the heart, which is what I'm passionate about. Um, but I'm also passionate about like the environment and and yes. the sustainability for for humans. And so I started writing this book about evolution and why it's um, it's I think important to understand if we're going to achieve health. But I ended up writing this book about the environment too, because you know the connection that I found was that um, I think the same things that are are you know causing our planet to um, you know, go Get down sick. the dumps, I guess, yeah. the same things that are making us, you know, sick. Uh, and so I think that the two are so connected and so um, not to give the book away, but I, I think that if, if people prioritize their health, if everybody did that, I think the planet would see better health too, because at the end of the day, like the, the planet will be fine. I mean, we talk about, you know, saving our planet, but really we're trying to, you know, save the species on the planet because, you know, if, if all the species today, you know, went extinct, the planet would come back around and eventually, you know, something else would happen. Um, so it's not about saving the planet, but it's about you know, the species on it. Yeah. And, and um, an interesting thing on that is like, I spoke about this with Vinny Tortorich. We, we recently had him on and, and I was telling him about how we're really good friends with Dr. Peter Ballerstedt and we, we love his work. And we had him on the podcast a while back and I was still stuck in this this old defensive mentality because I was like, let's let's sit down with Dr. Ballerstedt and let's talk to him about sustainability. And we had this great conversation and, and I realized after the conversation, I was like, we are moving past a very important subject and talking about the things that we need to talk about to defend the sustainability sustainability of what we're doing when we should probably go back a little bit and and rewind and and still focus about focus on on health because exactly what you're saying like if we're if not only are we the what we're eating is is making us unhealthy and and sick and killing us um we're also poisoning our food supply and when we poison our food supply of course it, it breaks up the whole um beautiful ecosystem that that we have ecosystems all around the world and um so now we're, we're focusing more we have to spend time of course on like talking about sustainability and even like regenerative practices but we still have to talk about this health thing man because it's so important right exactly i think that you know people you know put so much effort and time and money and resources into, you know, these campaigns that, you know, like plant a tree or save the whales or whatever. And that's great, you know, but I really think that if, you know, everybody just prioritized their health, we'd stop doing the things that are, you know, causing the whales to die and, and, um, leading to destruction of forests and things like that. Um, now there's, there's debate, you know, people think that, you know, what's, what's the best thing to do for a human is, is up in the air. And, um, and that's where we have to, you know, spread this information so that people do understand what I think is the best environment to put a human in as far as diet and, and toxins and all these different things because if you know the most powerful thing is is we're all consumers and you know the the market will will follow what the consumers want and so if we all demand health then i think that we'll see huge shifts uh in more than just the arena of health yeah man i, I totally agree and and the other thing is like i i'm aware of um you know inconsistencies when i when i talk about how you know vegans and vegetarians are flying you know all types of produce in from different countries because we're destroying our topsoil so we're like well we have a very strong petrodollar and we can go around the world and and then destroy their soil um because we've destroyed our soil and we can fly that over but i think we need to also be aware of like when we're doing that with meat too you know so like that's why this whole locavore movement i'm i'm really getting into it now and just focusing on helping people understand like how to get meat locally and if they want to get some organic produce, you know, get it locally when it's in season so that you're not creating this whole artificial market and artificial distribution process that that is, you know, in large part, you know, doing a lot of this damage. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, you know, pretty carnivore right now. And that's the one thing that I noticed is that, you know, all of a sudden, the majority of my food was coming from Polyface Farm, which is like less than an hour from me. 
and and then sometimes I order from U.S. Wellness Meats, and that's you know Missouri, so that's still um, way closer than if we were shipping you know the plants I may have been eating before um, across the world. Uh, and also, I felt like you know when I went carnivore, I was producing way less waste. I mean, like the example I give and I've posted about on Instagram is that like the indicator for my trash needing to be taken out is because it started to smell, not because it was full. Oh, we um, go through that too. Yeah. Right now, my yeah. garbage is stinking. Oh, and- it smells so bad, but it's so empty. Yeah, our recycling yeah. can't keep up with us. Yeah, yeah exactly. The only issue I'm facing right now is is that all the meat or most of the meat I'm getting is coming in plastic and so yeah. I'm trying to Same. find ways around that you know if I find a butcher that can you know just wrap it in paper and stuff like that so that'd be a good solution but I'll get there yeah, yeah that's, that's what Dr. Dan- uh, Anthony J I think said he does because he gets it straight from the butcher he buys the or, whole cow, if, or he right? kills or he kills the animal or if, if he kills hunting. the animal it gets wrapped in what is it uh, in, like uh, wax paper or something yeah. and then yeah, yeah. And then they wrap it yeah yep. I know yeah so we want to get into like you know a little bit more about you so we, we want our listeners to know a little bit more so when did you find out? I want to learn a little bit more about your your type one diabetes uh, diagnosis and and how has your management of this condition evolved over the years? Yeah. Um- so yeah, even from uh, you know younger age, and when I was diagnosed with type one, I had a lot of inflammatory issues. Um, I was you know I got the diagnosis of asthma at age two, and um, I used to like break out in hives like all over my body, and they didn't know why. They would just tell me that it was allergies. They're like, don't let him mow the lawn, do that kind of stuff, you know. And and uh, and then eventually at nine, um, I started feeling weird. I would describe it, and I just remember my my memory of it is I was sitting in a computer lab at in school and just feeling like I needed to stretch. Like that was the feeling that I had. Like I just needed to, to stretch. So I would get out of the chair and get yelled at by the teacher. And, um, or that I, and I was going to the bathroom a lot. Um, oh yeah. The you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I feel like the teachers were looking at me suspiciously, like, why does he have to go pee all the time? <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so eventually, you know, found our way to the doctor and, you know, my blood sugar was in like the seven hundreds or something oh, like my that. Gosh. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the doctor I remember was like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not like life threatening right now. Like, but we need to get him in the hospital by the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> not right now, just the afternoon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, like, I didn't really understand what's going on. I mean, I, I, I really don't even know what the doctor said that day. I just remember like turning around, my mom was crying, and I was like, "Oh, this must be like serious." Um, but yeah, so since that time, I've been kind of, um, well, not since that time, but up until about you know twenty years old. From so uh, throughout the rest of my childhood, I, we were you know very dependent on on Western medicine to help us manage this condition. You know, and um, you know it, it's effective at that. It'll help you manage the condition. And, and what I was told. But I don't think I was ever told anything about the food I ate or, or, or that the food I ate would have an effect on my ability to manage the condition. Um, never. Uh, even, it's incredible. Yeah. Especially for yeah. something and like diabetes, you know, because. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I love my pediatric endocrinologist and um, I would refer any, you know, any child to him today even just because he was he really helped me understand what was going on even as a child. And uh, but yeah, but still, you know, nothing about food and I remember these huge booklets that we would get that would just like, um, you know, like carbohydrate counting booklets. Like I, I could look up literally any food in there, any food from a fast food restaurant, any food from anywhere. And it would tell me how many carbohydrates are in it. And looking back on that now, I'm like, does that seem like a little bit crazy? You know, that like I, I have this disease that makes me intolerant to car- carbohydrates pretty much. And yet I'm I'm pretty much being told that it's okay. Just know how much is in it, you know? <laughs> just wow. count it. You know? just it why am I counting it? No, no, no real important, no just real reason just count it yeah right yeah and and it was just like you know it doesn't happen, matter how many carbs you eat just give yourself a ton of insulin you yep. know wow. and yeah and, and at first it was it was a little bit harder to do 
because I was doing shots, like I was doing like a long acting insulin and then um, with meals would take a shorter acting one to, to, you know, counteract the meal. And, uh, but then when you got an insulin pump, I got an insulin pump when I was 13, that just made it so that I could, you know, quote unquote, eat whatever I wanted. And because I always had insulin available to me, to me, I didn't have to plan out meals or anything. Um, and so it was almost like, yes, the pump makes things way easier, but it also makes you lazier and right. it probably makes you eat worse. Um, or at least it did when I was a kid. And so, you know, somewhere around in college, I, I, you know, I majored in health and wellness promotion and, uh, I started seeing the, the value of, of or the, the impact, how, how I lived my life had on the disease, uh, and the ability to manage my conditions. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time. It was all like trial and error and I was slowly learning things. Um, but I was just, I just found it interesting that no doctor had told me, you know, these things that you could change your diet and exercise. And, and I'd always been active, but you know, when I changed the diet, I saw even more impact with the exercise. Um, or even for me, like stress management and, and getting rid of toxins, like when they eventually learned those things, um, I feel they've had an impact on my ability to, to regulate blood sugars as well. And so the other thing was, is that you know, about the time when I was in college, I had a, I had a very, uh, opinionated girlfriend. And, um, <laughs> when I went to the doctor and they finally decided that I'd been diabetic long enough that it was time to protect my kidneys, quote unquote, and put me on a blood pressure medication, even though my blood sugar was, or my blood pressure was 112 over 70 at that visit. Oh, wow. Um, wow. she was like, no, don't do that. You'll be on that the rest of your life. It, it might even kill you because low blood pressure is more dangerous than high blood pressure short term. And, uh, and, you know, fortunately I listened to her and, um, was doing, you know, was finding out all these types of things. But, you know, I've had, I've had doctors want to put me on a statin, not because my cholesterol was high. Um, and I don't even think that's a problem, but like, um, but just because that was the standard of care for anybody who'd been diabetic as long as I had. Um, and so, so that was like a prophylactic measure. They're saying like, put them on a pre, like pre, pre put him on just in case. Yeah, exactly. Wow. wow. Uh, yeah. And so they were like, yeah, anybody, um, that was actually a physician's assistant that, that did that. Um, uh, anybody who's been diabetic longer than 50 15 years is what I was told uh, should be on a statin drug. Uh, wow. And when I, this is, this is when I was much more educated and I, and I started to, to tell her, you know, I, I don't want to do that. And this is why um, she wasn't happy about it. And, you know, <laughs> so, but yeah, um, yeah, it's just really interesting. And so, I mean, it makes total sense to me that, you know, like I said, if you're intolerant, this disease that makes me pretty much intolerant to carbohydrates, unless I have something synthetic, um, a form of insulin that I can I can use to, to balance it, uh, that I should avoid them. And so the more and more I learned, you know, carbohydrates are not even essential um, for your body. You know, you can you can make all the glucose you need um, uh, from other macronutrients, then it just made sense to cut them out. And so, um, you know, I went through all kinds of phases trying to figure out the best diet for me. I went through a, a vegan phase that was a disaster. Um, and it, in the sense that it, blood sugars were terribly hard to control. Um, because even though I was, you know, I saw the effect that, you know, processed carbohydrates had on, uh, my blood sugars, like even, even just the unprocessed ones that I was eating as a vegan, um, were hard. And so, um, went through that stage and, you know, and then when I moved to Ireland, I, I you know, discovered like Kerrygold butter and, and, uh, and that all the cows there are grass fed, there is no grain feeding. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So maybe I'll start eating animals again and just noticed immediately the difference. And so that kind of took me down that road, then more paleo and then, um, yeah, then completely keto. Um, it's just been the most profound thing I've, I've done for blood sugars because, you know, as a, as a type one, I'm, I'm dependent on, um, you know, injecting insulin. And so I have a pump. So I have 
these sites and sometimes the sites work great um, and most of the time they do but sometimes they they don't work as well uh, like just from an absorption standpoint you know um, and so you know when that happened and I was eating um, more carbohydrate foods it was just like you know we get these huge spikes in blood sugar and they were really hard to bring down whereas like if that happens now and I'm I'm keto or, or carnivore like it, it really doesn't affect it much at all um, so it, it's just nice to be able to troubleshoot or, or avoid that situation just because of my diet. That's amazing. I mean, you know, as it is, like you think about like situations where, you know, you got to be really careful when you're traveling and all that, like it, it just adds a whole level of complexity if you're more dependent on your insulin, like, you know, availability of insulin in different places. I mean, I just, I just think about all these things and it's just, they, they make it so easy for you to just be like, Hey, forget about it. Just, to, just rely on us. We got you. Don't worry about mm-hmm. what you eat. And mm-hmm. actually, um, I don't, did you ever, did you watch the, the fat documentary? I did, yeah. So I think they they talked about how the doctor told them. I don't know if that was there or if I heard oh, it. Oh, the recently. couple, the yeah, was it? Oh, them? yeah, I remember the couple. Yeah, there. with their yeah. son that was ty- uh, that was diabetic. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and they said basically like you know, listen, this kid has a death sentence. You know, the last thing you want to do is give him like healthy food because you know his his life already sucks. So just give him whatever he wants. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the mom saying like, this kid's quality of life is going to be terrible. Don't do that to your, to your kid. You know, and it's just like, what? So crazy. Imagine as a parent, you know, you're, you don't know. Did they end up calling like DCF or something? They were like, yeah, they, well, they wanted to have her evaluated. Yeah. To have her like possibly lose custody of her child. Yeah. I mean, sort of on those lines, you mentioned like availability of insulin. This is just, just an interesting thing that I thought of. Like, so insulin here, like since the whole health insurance situation, like it's really expensive. Uh, if I want to get the most effective one, you know, right. it's over $300 for wow. a bottle. And luckily I, I can make a bottle last pretty long time because I don't use that much. But if I want that type, it's really expensive. Where when I was um, back in 2011, I was a backpack through Central America and uh, I was in Panama and I walked up to, this was the, the first country I got to down there. And I walked up to the pharmacist and I was like, insulin rapido. And <laughs> she, handed, she handed over to me and said like $10. And I was like, wow. what? You wow. know, so I bought like four more. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Yeah, it's just crazy. I didn't need a prescription and it was super cheap um, and it was the type I wanted. That's crazy. It's just crazy to me that, that the prices are so jacked up here they for are. whatever reason. For a lot of um, things too. Because, yeah, because there's there's been times where I've I've gone back over to you know a, a less effective or not the ideal form of insulin because the other ones are so expensive. Um, and so, you know, with insurance being the way that it is, because yeah. uh, I'm never going to use, you know, up to my deductible, right? Um, no matter if I bought insulin out of pocket or not. So, you know, I got these super high deductible plans, so I don't really want to pay for that all the time. Um, it's just it's just kind of messed up because there's people that, that need this, like me, unfortunately. Right. But it's it's a messed up system. It is. Totally. It is very much. It is to- totally. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, what you do with your chiropractic. So because you were trained in chiropractic and we are used to seeing chiropractors talk about um, nutrition with their clients nowadays because they're more, you know, of a holistic, they have a more holistic approach just in general. Uh, but you also practice functional medicine. Um, and what interests you, what interests you about heart health and how, how did that become such an important focus for you as a chiropractor? Yeah. So and it kind of stems back to the diabetes as well, because I remember as a kid going to the endocrinologist and always seeing this this one poster in there that was like, you know, as a diabetic, you're more likely to have, you know, damage to your eyes and, and kidney damage and, um, you know, um, uh, peripheral damage. So you need amputations and all these different things, you know, um, and have heart disease. And so I've been pretty um, interested in what I can do to prevent heart disease because I have this thing. My blood sugars will never be as better, as good as say like you guys, you know. 
Um, and so I had this thing predisposing me to it. Like, what can I do about it? Because when I asked the doctors, like, why why are all these things associated with diabetes? And they were like, because of vascular damage um, due to high blood sugars. And so, um, yeah, I just really been into that. So then throughout my life, anytime I heard heart disease, I might ears perked up and I would just pay attention. And then, and I, and, you know, I thought about, you know, I, I really liked my pediatric endocrinologist and it's kind of what inspired me to be a doctor. But then as I had these experiences with, with medical doctors and they didn't tell me what I could do um, to treat this differently, I kind of lost interest in that almost, but then thought maybe more holistic. My parents had taken me to chiropractors um, when I was a kid and they said that it helped me with the inflammatory things that I, I had going on. I don't remember. I was too young, but um, so yeah, I, I decided to go that route instead. Um, and even, even in chiropractic school, like, yes, you know, we look at the body more holistically and holistically and like the, the innate ability to, for the body to heal itself. Like we, we get that, but my school especially was still very focused on diagnosis. You know, it was like labeling what the condition is, which in, in my opinion, I, I don't think, you know, most diseases are not real things. They're just names we've given to certain sets of symptoms. Um, and we, we like humans have kind of created these things. And so instead of asking why this is happening, we're asking what it is. And so, so I was attracted to functional medicine as well. And right about the time that I was graduating chiropractic school, I, um, um, my school also opened up a, a two-year master's in human nutrition and functional medicine uh, that was um, sort of half online, half not. And so I decided to do that as well uh, and got into the functional medicine route. But then um, most of what I've kind of found and the approach I take to health has been more not academic at all. It's been like my own research and really finding out, you know, what's going on and, and relating that to to um, all different aspects or all different um, disciplines of science. I think that the fact that um, most of our medical knowledge comes from, you know, biochemistry um, and, but there's a physics side to the body um, and there's an ecology side to the body. And I think that that is just as important as knowing the biochemistry. And so that's where I've kind of drawn all my conclusions, um, which, you know, most of them are in the book, but I'm writing another book about the heart right now, um, specifically because I'm so passionate about that. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. And I love that you mentioned like the ecology because you know, we think about, you know, if you're, you know, if you're someone who's interested in fitness, for for example, like, and you're interested in like functional um, movement patterns and, and, you know, corrective exercise, you, you have this idea in your mind of this kinetic chain that, that helps you understand, like, that's, let's, why did this guy tear his Achilles? Like what happened? And then you can trace that back. Well, look, his right knee, you know, above that was overcompensating because his left hip was, you know, overcompensating because his right, you know, spinal erector was really tight because he had a tight hip flexor on his right side. So you start to see like all these processes and it's, it takes a lot more research. Like you said, personal research. I think someone who practices any type of medicine should, should be always like searching and getting a better picture of the whole, of the whole picture. Cause then you can say, okay, well, in this situation, in these symptoms, I can see that it's possibly, we haven't even looked over here. Let's look over here to see what's happening over here. Cause that could be influencing this. Right. And we don't do that. Like you said, we, we, we put a label yeah, on it for a label and now and we have a standard of a, care that we follow a prescription. Yeah. And people, exactly. unfortunately, Unfortunately, I feel like that because that's my my focus was kind of always on the doctor side of it. But really, the patients have a lot to do with it, too, because they want the pill, too. They they kind of want the quick fix. You know, it, it's harder, I think, to get someone to change their lifestyle. So we really got to work on how to relay that, you know, like to to patients so that they can feel empowered to take control of their own health and not just want a quick fix. So, yeah, and it's it's not even their fault. Most of them, I mean, exactly. it's been trained. They've been trained that way. Right. They've been trained that, you know, things go wrong. 
wrong and you need something to fix it. Um, Absolutely. And that's just how, I mean, that's how medicine kind of thrives. That's the, the profit driven system that it is. Um, but yeah, I think that it, you know, like I was saying, even in chiropractic school, so focused on what it is. And, you know, as good as having that baseline medical education is or has been for me, I was I was a little unsatisfied. Um, it just didn't, you know, quench my uh, my desire for, for knowledge of why. Uh, and so obviously it's been good for me to have as I furthered that search, you know, um, good baseline information. Uh, but it's still... I uh, wasn't satisfied. And so that's what, that's what keeps driving me because there's still so much out there that I, I need to, to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about something that I almost can't believe that we have to continue to address, but uh, the topic being cholesterol. Just just this week, we had a good friend of ours share how his dad lost over 60 pounds following a carnivore diet and saw several improvements in his health and blood markers, and his doctor's still concerned about his cholesterol. And of course, focusing on that, you know, so now he's concerned. Um, why do you think this is still so prevalent? And what can patients do when, when doctors question them regarding regardless of how good they look and feel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the reason that it's still such a thing that that's, we're so hung up on is, is you know, the whole history of Ansel Keys and, and the diet heart hypothesis and, and how that just got kind of in, installed in mainstream knowledge. You know, it wasn't just knowledge of, of medical professionals. It was, it, it just became like um, this media thing. And so now everybody th- thought that it was bad. And so it's just, we're so hung up on that, despite what, you know, modern, modern evidence and research is showing us. And yeah, and, and the other thing is that when we look at when we look at like any kind of blood work, we can never take one number, um, whether it's total cholesterol or LDL or any other number by itself, and and you know tell what's going on with that person or whether that person's at risk for anything. I mean, just that's why we take a whole panel of things. You know, we, we have to look at things um, in reference to each other, and so. Um, I, I am of the opinion and, you know, I'm not a lipidologist or a cardiologist, but I'm of the opinion that, that LDL is, is, um, and cholesterol in general is not a problem, um, at all by itself. Um, the problem comes when uh, we have other things break down in the body, like when we have oxidative stress and when we have, um, a breakdown in, in uh, fourth phase water and the lining of our arteries, which is a whole nother podcast maybe, but, um, but so, but we have to look at things in context. So if we, if we have high LDL, you know, that may only be a problem if we have low HDL and high triglycerides and high levels of inflammation and insulin resistance and those types of things. So we have to look at that um, all as one thing to be able to tell if this person um, is at risk for anything. And then the other side of that is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies, some of them, you know, associational, um, some of them not, that are showing that, that people with higher cholesterol live longer, they have better right. quality of life. Seems with have, women, it's more prevalent with women, women too, especially, right? Especially, I've heard. Yeah, I've seen. yeah, it's it's almost like it's protective. So, right. and then I, you know, I'll steal from uh, Nadir Ali. Yes. He says that <laughs> you know, him. if if uh, if if evolution has preserved this mechanism of LDL, um, then there must be a reason for it, right? Yep. And and I love that idea of things because I love evolution, and so um, you know, to suppress it like that, um, I think is is dangerous and, and a little irresponsible when you're not looking at the whole picture. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, here's a real cool one for me. This one's like I this is like I love seeing new ideas when they're when they're presented and like this this is one to me um i don't see especially with relation to like cardiac health i don't see this one often i mean it may be it may be listed as a maybe contributing factor but not the way you put it and you 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 posted that an interesting quote on this subject from the book and you talked about how chronic stimulation of sympathetic activity and suppression of parasympathetic parasympathetic activity uh is a root cause behind most heart attacks and obviously we love this because we're always talking about the importance of focusing 
focusing on parasympathetic, uh, parasympathetic activities and maintaining a healthy parasympathetic tone of your auto- autonomic nervous system. But it's a little bit different than the other main cause that we often hear from from other low carb advocates, you know, which is chronic inflammation. So can you ab- elaborate on um, this interplay between, you know, too much sympathetic and, and just no, nowhere near enough parasympathetic? Yeah, definitely. So this is, this is my favorite thing to talk about. Oh, yeah, we awesome. love this stuff too. Uh, yeah. So like my, it's just explaining like what, what causes a heart attack in my opinion, like in my opinion, the majority of heart attacks and, and, and cardiologists would disagree with me because they would say that the majority of heart attacks are caused by a clot or a stenosis that closes up enough that it restricts blood flow to an area. And, um, and you know, when that happens, we get tissue death. Um, but I, I came across the work of this, this pathologist named Baraldi, Giorgio Baraldi, and he, he did the, he did a lot of interesting work studying um, the hearts of people who who died of a heart attack, some people who didn't die of a heart attack. Um, he did all these different interesting things, like he would cast the arterial system and then dissolve away the tissue so he had a perfect um, display of what the arterial system of the heart looked like. And he found that um, in one of the studies, he found that anywhere that there was a more than 70% stenosis of an artery, um, a coronary artery, that the, the body had built a vast network of collaterals around it um, that oh, bypassed wow. it completely. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I see there's a lot of... like. Yeah bypassing that goes on right yeah yeah and it's it's and it but it was these some of them were so small that you know you wouldn't pick them up on an angiogram because you know most cardiologists are aware of collateral vessels and they think that you know sometimes somebody has a blockage but they don't have a heart attack and they think oh yeah well this person just has well-developed collaterals um but Beraldi showed that anywhere there was a 70 percent stenosis in 100 percent of the cases there was a network of collaterals that the body built some of them too small to show up on an angiogram so um you wouldn't necessarily know they were there um and they also found interesting things like um uh, so he, he like in 50% of the, this one study, this 50% of the people that died of a heart attack had no clot whatsoever or stenosis that was significant enough to, to cause anything like that. And then in the other 50, um, there was lots of evidence that it, that the, the clot that was there wasn't the cause of it. Like the, the clot was so old that it couldn't explain the new heart attack that happened, the recent heart attack that happened. Or there was a clot, but it was in a totally different area of the heart than where the heart attack happened. Um, and so there was all these different discrepancies that, it, you know, it doesn't disprove that a clot can cause a heart attack or a stenosis, not by any means. And, and, I, and I think that definitely does happen. But based on some of these studies that he did, it, it almost suggests that the majority of them aren't caused by that sort of thing. So then I really started digging into what does cause it then. You know, if it's not this, then how do we get tissue death? And so I stumbled upon three things that I think are driving, you know, what, what is a heart attack. And so that is not being fat adapted, not, not supplying the heart with ketones and fatty acids because that's its preferred fuel source, which is very interesting um, because there's, you know, we have to work pretty hard to get into ketosis. Um, We have to avoid carbohydrates, whereas the heart seems to be able to select for fatty acids and ketones, even when carbohydrates are present. Um, So I think that for whatever reason, you know, it's, it prefers that um, um, more than any other tissue. And um, the second one being oxidative stress, which, you know, is that inflammation that, you know, we hear a lot in the low carb community and how, um, uh, ketogenic diets can reduce oxidative stress, um, but also, um, reducing toxin exposure and that kind of stuff. So um, the important thing there is that oxidative stress, I believe, is what causes damages, damage to the, the lining of the artery, not just the uh, endothelia itself, but the protective uh, layer of water that is the fourth phase water. Um, there, it also breaks that down as well. That's 
that's so, good stuff. That's the good stuff. That's, the, that's a lot of people amazing. should that's, be talking more about that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually just got. Uh, you sound like you're familiar with this, but I actually just got an email last week from uh, Gerald Pollack. Oh, talking, wow. and uh, he said that one of his graduate students has proven now that um, this does happen in the cardiovascular system. That fourth phase water does form and drive blood flow. Um, and and I and I asked him if he thought that it protected the artery. He said, Yeah, that that would make sense because it's an exclusion zone. So as long as you have healthy fourth phase water on the lining of your artery, which will form if the water is energized, then nothing can get to it. Doesn't matter if it's LP little A, APOB, whatever. It's it's not going to get there if that's healthy. So I think that's huge. But this oxidative stress will break that down. Um, and then. I mean, oxidative stress has kind of plays a role in the body as well. It does some some good things, but we don't want too much of it, you know. And then the third one is that autonomic nervous system imbalance. So this is basically an imbalance in our stress response. Um, we're supposed to, or we've evolved to, you know, have a stress response, but it's always supposed to be balanced by the non-stress signal. So if we have a surge in adrenaline and a stress response to any particular part of our body, there's always supposed to be a lesser surge of the, the parasympathetic or the non-stress response to balance things out. And so I think that when these three imbalances happen, um, the series of events that leads to, I would argue that the majority of heart attacks is what happens. So let's say someone's living this this stressful life, you know, unnatural stresses from our modern day way of life, uh, and they get this imbalance in their um, their stress response. So they become more sympathetic dominant. They kind of get stuck in this fight or flight mode, or at least their body um, uh, seems to be stuck in it. And, you know, it's almost like they have, they're having, um, they're buying physiologically life-threatening responses to non-life-threatening things um, because we can think our way into a stress response, you know, because we don't make enough money or we're worried about the kids or, you know, we want to get that promotion or whatever, um, those types of things. And so when that happens, like I said, we're supposed to have this balance, but the key thing is that the, the sympathetic signal to the heart cells um, goes into the heart cells with, without needing any help. It just goes straight to it. Um, whereas the parasympathetic one is dependent on nitric oxide. That molecule, which you know we're told dilates the blood vessels, which is what it does, one thing that it does, is also um, needed to relay that parasympathetic signal to the heart cells. So if we have high oxidative stress um, that's damaging the lining of our arteries, which is where nitric oxide is made, we're going to have less nitric oxide around. Also, Nitric oxide can act as an antioxidant and take care of a free radical. Um, so if we have this high oxidative stress, especially in the cardiovascular system, we're depleting nitric oxide. And let's say we get that surge of adrenaline and stress response to the heart cells, and then there's no nitric oxide there to allow the parasympathetic to balance it out. And so it never happens. Um, and so that, that surge there happens, and then... Um, when the when the body the heart gets that signal, uh, it thinks we're in this fight or flight response that we need to get away from something as fast as we can and uh, or or fight it off or whatever. And when that happens in like say your muscles, like when you go for a run, which is a sympathetic kind of response, a good sympathetic response, um, we start to burn more glucose for fuel. Um, and that results in this buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, which is the muscle burn that you feel when you're working out. Um, but like I said, the heart doesn't like to do that. It prefers to burn um, uh, fat for fuel. And so if we get this surge in adrenaline without the parasympathetic to balance it out, now all of a sudden the heart reverts to burning more glucose for fuel because it's always burning a little of both, but it's predominantly fatty acids. Or it seems to prefer that. But if it's forced to burn glucose, um, that can result in that same kind of burning sensation that we feel on our legs and we go for a run, um, but it's happening in the heart and we call that angina. 
Um, yeah. And so if that goes too far um, and it becomes, you know, uh, too uh, much of a, uh, a stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, um, then, then a few things can happen. One is we get this buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions in an area of the heart tissue um, and that uh, builds up pressure. And so when the pressure is too much and the pressure changes, um, then now all of a sudden the pressure was usually from the coming from the arteries to the tissue. Now the pressure is the other way, you know, so the blood can't get there, um, which I think this, this aspect of this theory explains why um, nearly 100% of heart attacks are seen in the left ventricle because that's under the most pressure. So it's more of the ventricles under the most pressure. So it's just more susceptible to any pressure changes. Um, and so that um, there's also so, uh, been a lot of other um, studies showing that um, when this happens or when we convert to burning predominantly glucose that it interferes with calcium absorption in the cells and calcium is what the cells use to contract muscle cells in the heart use to contract in any muscle cell and so if they can't contract we get like this seizing up and then we get tissue death um, and so I think that that's what at least one mechanism of, of how a heart attack happens and you know I'm I'm keeping track of the number of people that have told me and I'm getting more of them now as I'm putting this message out there that have told me like, yeah, so-and-so had a heart attack or I had a heart attack and they never found a clot, you know? And to me, this is the mechanism by which this happens. Um, and then um, Baraldi also found that that sometimes there was evidence that there was a clot, but there was evidence that the clot happened after the heart attack started. So it wasn't the cause of it, but it happened afterwards. And he found that, um, or he can, he kind of concluded that that was because of this pressure change um, in that area caused any, you know, plaque formation that was already there to dislodge. Um, and you know, make make the situation worse. But uh, but yeah, that that to me, that's that's what causes a heart attack. So then it becomes very important to look at being fat adapted, reducing oxidative stress, and balancing your autonomic nervous system. Wow, that's 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 amazing and so interesting. Um, and I wanted to piggyback off that. And I saw I was trying to look for it now, but of course I couldn't find it. A post that you that you made talking about or some study that I saw that um, helping others is a good way to actually get yourself into a parasympathetic state and to mm -hmm. kind of offset if you do have a very stressful life. Yeah, yeah, this is a really interesting study. So what they did was they they basically just surveyed people and they they asked them how many stressful events they they had in their life. And these were like, you know, major stressful events. And so they looked at, and they looked at mortality. They looked at, you know, of these people that reported they had this much or, or however much stress in their life, you know, what percentage of them died? And, you know, was there a correlation between having stress and, and mortality in life? And they found that there was definitely a correlation And people who reported that um, they had more stressful events, like every stressful event they reported, there was a 30% increase in mortality. However, that was completely wiped away, that association, if the people also reported that they helped others in some way. Um, like it went to zero. There was no more association. And these are just associations, but that's pretty profound. Well, you know? I'll, I'll take that association and I'll run with it because like, yeah. you know, Can't we hurt. we are both, um, you know, recovering from from specific addictions. And like one of the things that you learn is like when you when you feel like your ego's taking over and you feel like you're becoming a victim again, because that's easy for us to do is go out and serve. And so like if we can say <laughs> that we, we can not only shift our mindset and get, get into a point of gratitude, which, of course, also would bring you into a parasympathetic right, tone, right. Um, you're, you're actually doing things. Things that that are associated 
with, you know, decreased stress levels. So somehow maybe oxytocin is playing a role, some some sort of hormonal things happening um, just by just by helping other people in times That's of right. stress. Yeah, I think that, you know, we are we are social beings. And I think that um, over the, the years of our evolution, we, we evolved to like what made us so successful. One of the things was that we, we could bind together, communicate, um, love, all these different things. And so I think that what we're seeing today is that, you know, this you know, the technology age has really done so many amazing things for us. But I think it's also isolated us a little bit. You know, we have, you know, social media and I can communicate with, with you rather these like you guys rather than face to face, which would be awesome. But through this, which is great, we're spreading the message and it's it's a great way to get ourselves out there. But we're I think we're losing a little bit of, of that that contact, that human contact. Um and it's yeah, it's just an interesting kind of phenomenon to me. Absolutely, a hundred percent. I mean, Maura Maura talks about talk this. About this how like we're more like, connected but disconnected. Like yeah, yeah like at the same yeah. throughout history, there's never been a time where you would be able to have like twelve different conversations. 12, sometimes it could be. Yeah, I mean, you, you got like a hundred of conversations going on at once. Yeah. on different platforms, and none of them of are. Of course, in person. nobody can pay attention. Like we all have ADD now. I feel like that's something we also caused by yeah. <laughs> social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's. I mean, we're always so. Uh, I guess stimulated. Stimulated. Like, you know, mm-hmm. We see that we see that notification on our phone, um, and we we want to check it. You know, yep. and, and it's it's always this, this heightened response. And and I'm totally guilty of that too. I mean, sometimes yeah. I take my phone and and I you know put it somewhere else, and I go do something without it because right. I realize that I'm just like dependent on. It. Especially lately, as I've been you know putting my message out there and like right. seeing all this <laughs> stuff, and it's exciting because I'm getting to talk about what I like to talk about. But it's still sometimes I just gotta check out. Yeah, you do. Um, I do because I think yeah. that it's just it's just too much. And, and we're not we're not designed for that um, or evolve for that, whatever you want to say. So right. I, I totally, totally agree, agree with that. Like I put my phone yeah, down every night planned. at seven and I do. Yeah. I do get like a little bit of um, like, I don't know if it's like anxiety or par- yeah, both a little anxiety. bit of anxiety because I know that if I didn't spend enough time on social media today, like my backlog gonna is going to be tomorrow. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but I don't. It's non-negotiable. I put the phone down yeah. and on the weekends, it's like pretty much down all the time. But I want to get back to um, this you know the the heart and you know how it fuels itself and it prefers different fuels um we want to get back to the you know the communication and you know the signaling pathway so we'll get back to that but i, I want to talk um about how this main narrative that we still seem to hear from a lot of people in the fitness community and especially the medical community like when i was in a, um, a medical device rep i had a conversation with a doctor locally about diabetes and she was like absolutely wrong that's not true fat causes it and i was like okay this conversation's over <laughs> Um, but you know, she, it's, it's still this, you know, this caloric deficit thing. Like we will burn as much fat, we'll lose weight and everything will seem to be fine if we just perfect our calorie equations. But you know, people like you, you're just a heretic and you speak about these, these things called free radicals and oxidative stress. And that goes against this whole calorie model. So why do you hate carbs so much? Uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a basic level, it's because of the impact I've seen they've had on me personally yep. from being a diabetic. Like you see, like if I see a blood sugar that's not what I want it to be, it's just like, like that's just devastating to me because I, I see the repercussions. And it wasn't always that way. Like in high school, I was I didn't take care of myself at all. And it was it was bad. But, you know, once I started learning and, and I could look into the future a little better, my brain fully developed, you know, um, <laughs> that stresses me out. So that's one reason why I guess I hate carbs. But um, I guess I, I just feel like, I, I look at things from an evolutionary perspective. And I when you start to study the history of humans, you realize what carbs have done, you know? And I think that I think that people's 
you know, these days, I mean, getting back to the environment a little bit, like people see what we're doing to the planet, so to speak, you know, quote unquote. Um, and, and we are doing some bad things to the planet, but it's not just now that we've been doing it. Like we've been, we've been putting ourselves in a bad situation for a long time. And I think that, you know, if you look at, you know, 2.5 to about 1.8 million years ago, there was these massive uh, animals, you know, around these, this megafauna they're called. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, huge kilogram weight numbers and, and anywhere that humans showed up in archaeological evidence, they started to die off. And so over the last, um, you know, about 2 million years, they've just, they've kind of plummeted um, the, the size of these animals because humans were eating them. And so I think that eventually, you know, we, we almost, you know, became what we are today um, as far as our large brain and our, and our larger stature because we were eating these animals, but we killed them all off. And so now we were forced to do something else. And so we were smart. So we, we figured out farming. Um, but if you look at what's happened since then, not only from a, um, a health standpoint, from, but I would argue from like a, um, a society standpoint, um, you know, the, the advent of, of civilization and all this kind of stuff has done amazing things for us, made our lives easier. Um, but also, I think, you know, resulted in, you know, what we eventually have is like crime and, and all these other, um, you know, socioeconomic problems and things like that. Um, but it all stemmed from the fact that we, you know, you know, probably maybe weren't smart enough then to realize that we were killing off our food supply. And then the thing that made us who we are now, we couldn't sustain ourselves on that anymore. Um, so we have, we're forced to do farming and, you know, there's evidence that our brains have shrunk in the last 10,000 years. Um, so what effect is that having on not just, you know, people's individual health, but the ability of us to, you know, come together and, you know, be nice to each other and all these different things. Um, and then you, you start to see that, you know, when we started farming, you know, who controlled the food is who controlled, um, you know, had the power, you know, and so then it creates socioeconomic classes and then there's all this struggle between those. And it's not to say that life was perfect before farming happened, you know, those nature was pretty relentless as well. But as far as like a, a human to human aspect, I think that it, it's a lot of problems have, have stemmed from us being relied on carbohydrates. And then, um, you know, I, I, Paul Saladino talks about this a lot, you know, he's a uh, trained in psychiatry, and the, the effects that ketosis has on people um, who are having psychiatric issues. Um, so I think I think that that's just, it's huge to trace it back that and just really understand where all the issues we're seeing today, where they came from and what changed because that can guide us to what we need to do now. I don't even know if I answered the question. I just kind of went No, no, no. I totally love it. And I and because we're going to get back to the carbs thing again, but this other anthropological and socio sociological conversation is super interesting because I love that you talked about that. Like when you think about, you know, the idea that concentrating food um, in the, the hands of a few because you have to know how to how to farm and, and you know, now that creates hierarchies and of course there's going to be struggle and conflict if you have different hierarchies versus you know back then when it was like hey you you uh you go behind him i'll go over here around him and um you know we'll either chase him down off this cliff and go to the bottom and collect them then or you know people were just more proficient and it does make sense that you know when we start creating these these different systems that of course also don't work with the environment and don't have an understanding of how the the ecosystem works it, of course it's going to cause problems it makes a ton of sense yeah yeah for sure and i and I guess, you know, 
I guess the original question was why why do I hate carbs? And, <laughs> and maybe maybe that's one reason why I see I see the issues that uh, you know the whole population trying to um, sustain itself on carbs is is I think causing. And I think that um, I would just be crazy to me like I have I daydream sometime and I'm like what if what if the entire world was in ketosis? You know, like, how different would it be? Like would we see the crime we see? Would we see? We definitely um, have oh, flying I've cars. Of that. I've really We'd have of the that. flying yeah. cars. They, they <laughs> yeah. would be here. But I've truly yeah. thought of the crime thing too, especially with all this I mean I'm one of those people when you were just mentioning about what Paul Saladino says I am one of those actual people who came to ketosis to get off of antidepressants and I mean not only did it was it way more effective? Yeah, it's like way more effective than the drugs were. So, I mean, I just can't even. It, 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 I do think of those things sometimes. Like, I can't imagine all kids. the people walking around so angry. Like, yeah, like, they like just we need see to go these carnivore. kids, like these kids. Or the I'm kids. like, if these oh kids gosh. ate how our kids eat, they would be nicer to they our kids. They would be nicer. Yeah. I guarantee yeah. it because they wouldn't exactly. be. These kids they have this look in their eyes. They're always kind of like moody and, you know, going through a blood sugar high or a blood sugar low. And it does make you aggressive. Especially yeah, with boys. That, yeah, there's there's a reason that that you know babies are born in ketosis and that they have all this brown fat. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. like that that's just how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to make yeah. more brown fat. I think that's how we got through the winter, and like that just shows that you're in this ketotic state. And and then unfortunately, kids are are put on carbs as soon as they're if they were even breastfed. You know, right? Um, you know, they're put on carbs, and then their metabolism metabolism just shifts. And then from there, it's 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 uh, it's scary. And the the most interesting thing, maybe this will segue us back to autonomic nervous system but like so humans we made some sacrifices you know in order for us to have these big brains and and larger bodies and things we're born much earlier we're born pretty reliant on mom and dad we're pretty helpless and um one of the things that's not fully developed when we're born is our autonomic nervous system and so we're supposed to pick up on cues from uh mom and dad um that tell us we're in a safe place so Mm -hmm. you know we're supposed to be gazing into uh mom's eyes and you know you know making you know uh comforting noises those types of things have contact with mom um, and dad. And and so that is what trains our nervous system, what is safe. Um, and if, if that doesn't happen, you know, for the first, you know, six to 12 months of life, then this child um, doesn't have a default what is safe, you know, and this is the work of Dr. Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory, which is just fascinating stuff. And, and so now that child, if that didn't fully develop um, or develop properly, I guess, um, that child is just more likely to have to go into that stress response or, you know, have those life-threatening you know, physiologic responses to non-life threatening things um, because they have no safe baseline. You know, wow. because that's what our nervous system Great. is. It's just it's just interpreting our environment to tell us if we're in a safe one or a threatening one, and then we have the appropriate physiologic response to it. Well, that that reminds me of some of the stuff that Gabor Mate has talked about with um, like um, trauma and how you know trauma is not it's not what the what happens it's what your body does. Um, right. You know how it, responds. W- how it responds to the trauma, and of course that's when those patterns start and we don't really know them. They're so subconscious that yeah. we have flawed um, coping mechanisms because of that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's, I mean, to me, it just makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. All right. Well, I could talk about this kind of stuff all day, but we have a few more. We want to get back to some of the heart stuff. Um, you also speak about the heart's signaling pathway that allows it to communicate directly with fat cells. So how does burning predominantly glucose change the messages it sends to our fat cells? So that I actually, uh, I haven't seen, uh, I don't know that they looked at it. So I, I, I okay. have 
right. I found this study that showed that the the heart does have a direct signaling pathway to fat cells. Um, and then the researchers were like, well, this is great. If we can affect the heart somehow, we can tell the body to burn more fat and and, and treat obesity. And I was like, well, <laughs> that's not that's not what I would gather from that study. <laughs> but like to me, it suggests that there's such a preference and such a need and um, requirement um, for for the heart to burn fatty acids and ketones that if it is forced to start burning more glucose, it has a signaling pathway to the fat cells that it can say, hey, mobilize fat. Um, we need more of it. Um, but that was just something, I don't know if that's ever been looked at before, but that was a study that I came across recently. Um, so that's, I think that's one of the ways that that the heart um, ensures that it, um, it, you know, it can burn fat for fuel primarily. The other way I think is that um, when you eat fat, you know, it gets packaged into a, a chylomicron in your gut, and then that's put into the um, lymphatic system, which the lymphatic system drains through the um, thoracic duct pretty much directly into the heart. Um, now, it doesn't go directly to the heart muscles yet. It goes to the lungs first and then comes back, but it's still, you know, it's right there. It's almost like the heart um, is getting uh, first dibs on mm-hmm. those fatty acids um, just because of how they they um, get metabolized. Um, so yeah, I th- and, and I've seen that there's a study, um, it's an older study, but it, it's, it showed that, uh, and there's multiple studies that have shown this, that, that ketones are kind of like this um, modulating substrate for, for the heart. So the presence of them will um, dictate whether the heart burns fat or glucose. So if it's not present, it'll burn glucose. But if it is present, it doesn't matter if the glucose is there, it will still burn. It'll choose the ketones that you put in front of its face. And so um, the one study showed that um, uh, putting beta-hydroxybutyrate um, in the heart tissue caused a decrease of, of glucose um, utilization, 30 to 60%, um, which is a significant amount. So, you know, if ketones are present, the heart will choose to burn them. Oh, I remember that um, someone referenced that like a year or two ago, and I hadn't heard it about it uh, since. But I, I want to go back to one thing you said, because it reminded me how hard our job is, because um, you mentioned how the, the, the conclusions that are drawn by the research community to some of these findings. And it's like, not only do we have to, to look at these mechanisms, and and go past the typical, you know, treating disease. But now we have to also get them to think about this a different way because I, I thought about what you talked about earlier with nitric oxide and I was like thinking to myself, anybody who has that mindset, that medical, you know, pharmaceutical mindset is going to be like, well, just give them some sublingual nitroglycerin and that'll fix the net, the NL problem. So, you know, it's it's like these people have to completely change their paradigm. And that, I mean, it's it, it becomes very intimidating how big of a task that is, you know? Yeah, I mean, I you bring it. up nitric oxide, like, <laughs> you know, they keep people nitric nitroglycerin tablets and they're thinking, oh yeah, we're dilating the coronary vessels, um, which is allowing more blood flow to the area, which is probably happening. But for me, what's really happening is is they're, they're allowing that, para- <laughs> that, yeah, that parasympathetic <laughs> signal to go into the heart cell again, which is shifting the metabolism back toward fatty acids. Yep. Um, that's, that's what I think is probably the, the bigger thing going on. It's a great band-aid, but again, it goes back to that same, you mm-hmm. know, thing. Like, why don't we try to figure out instead of it's similar to like um I, I don't know if you've have you ever read deep nutrition by dr kate shanahan yeah i have so like you know how like we create all these glucosamine supplements and we create all these supplements because we identify whatever it is you know that's playing a role and instead of like making some bone broth or eating some eyeballs or eating some organs like we we package these things under like a high heat process which is probably denaturing it to begin with and then we package it in a bottle and we sell it for hundreds of times more 
more than we can get the actual food. It's just, it's just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. The more bioavailable food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like in the form absorb we what, know it. Maybe a quarter of that supplement. Right. But, yeah. You know, with the food you'll get, if, as long as your gut is healthy, then you'll get all of it. Yeah, man. So I, I, I want to talk about collagen because it's we talk about it a lot and um, we love, you know, collagen and glycine. We've spoken about it, but we've never talked about what it does in the heart. So um, I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on it. I know you've, you've mentioned recently about collagen. How does it impact heart health, like a, a healthy collagen and glycine status? Yeah, I mean, I get the first one you kind of touched on, uh, you know, it's going to drive that production of glutathione because um, glycine, glutathione is a, is a, um, has a few different amino acids, but glycine is the one that it, it needs because we don't usually get enough of that in our diet. So collagen has a lot of glycine. So that's going to drive the production of glutathione, which is going to help us with that oxidative stress. It's going to um, help us get rid of um, those excess free radicals if, if they're there. And so again, that's going to, you know, prevent the um, depletion of nitric oxide um, by nitric oxide acting as an antioxidant, but also um, it's going to help us prevent, you know, damage to the lining of our arteries so that the endothelium can produce nitric oxide. Um, the other thing is, is that you know, collagen is our connective tissue. It's, it's it's the most abundant protein in the body. It's kind of what holds us together. And I think it's really, really important for um, any type of, um, you know, tubular or, or system that's designed to keep things somewhere like the gut. You know, it's, it's really important for repairing the gut because um, we need to rebuild that connective tissue that was damaged. And it's the same for the lining of the arteries. Um, if we've got damage there um, and we want to lay down new healthy collagen when we start to repair it, when we start to make good lifestyle changes and things, then collagen is, is a essential for that process so that we can get healthy tissue there that's less likely to get damaged again. And there's actually studies, um, you know, I posted some a while back, um, you know, showing that um, collagen has a direct impact on the um, the inflammation in our arteries and the ability to repair them, um, you know, providing collagen protein and glycine and things like that. And it, it will do that. So it's all about this, you know, this, this dynamic system that we have that's kind of playing off each other, you know, and, you know, if the arteries aren't healthy, we don't get the nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is not there. We don't get the signal of the parasympathetic, you know, if we're, if we're not providing ketones, we're just more likely for that, that sympathetic signal to create a situation where we're making lactic acid in the heart, all these different things, you know, and so we have to balance all three of them. And yeah, collagen is a super important part of it. The, the other thing that I, I this might not be fair, but I, I'm going to ask you because you're a geek like me. Um, the, the collagen thing, I, I, first of all, thank you for telling me about, I, I didn't even think about how collagen could be used as, as I've thought about collagen for gut health. And that's where my question going but you know i never thought about how obviously it could help repair that lining it's 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 not very thick and yeah but but what i was thinking about and i've asked a few people and they've kind of like it's all been theoretical so hopefully you you might have something that's beyond speculation but um i when i was talking about fiber back in the day when i started eating a carnivore diet like over two years ago i i was looking at this fiber subject and wondering like can we get the same benefits of that you would get like short chain fatty acid production from like a soluble fiber from collagen and i was wondering if you had seen anything on that or if or if uh you just kind of like in theory think the same thing uh yeah nothing directly on on collagen or being able to use it to make short chain fatty acids um yeah nothing nothing directly but now you people i'm gonna look into it <laughs> yeah i'm just kind of yeah. interested because that's like a that's one of the things that we can we can say okay i understand that you know you're trying to you know whether it be for gut health or even for you know energy whatever you're using it for um because i've seen also like there's times when um you know i consume this this um this resistant starch that that 
that I take it as a, a pre-workout. And what I'll notice is that the days after, and ever since I started consistently using it, my I would see like a bump in ketones from eating a carbohydrate source. And my only my only um, kind of hypothesis on this at, at the moment is that somehow there were you know there was some short chain fatty acid production that was going through the whole cycle, and then ketones were being produced at the end. So I'm always kind of curious about other alternatives versus like a salt a soluble fiber or something like that. Yeah, well, um, I mean that would make sense to me. Um, but I know, and I don't know the exact mechanism, but I know I've heard um, Saladino talk about how um, you know eating carnivore and completely restricting carbohydrates and fiber and thing everything like that. You know, you're you will start um, uh, making uh, ketones in your gut or short chain fatty acids in your gut. Um, so it, it happens. Yeah. Um, it's not the beta hydroxybutyrate. It's it's some other ones that um, I can't remember which ones he says. Um, but yeah, maybe it, it butyrate, does definitely happen. The like butyrate part those, of it. I mean, yeah, um, and maybe. Yeah, not not acetone, but I mean it's what cows do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean that's they're running on fat too. Yeah, uh, right. They're just they just have the the digestive system right. um, ability to turn you know that fiber or that cellulose or whatever into short chain fatty acids, and we don't necessarily do that as well. So we need to eat directly fatty acids. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, well, we kind of have like um, a selfish ish question since you we have you on because uh-huh. our oldest Desmond he's eight now, but he was born with a subaortic membrane. Uh, that you know can cause a stenotic valve uh, thanks to Danny <laughs> thanks to <laughs> but my that's imperfect okay. genes I mean it happens it, I passed it, runs it through on the males. and I don't even have well, it well they like, do I've run gotten... through the males of the family <laughs> yeah. um, and it could have always been worse um, but um, we have, so we've been following his condition and four years ago when he was around yeah four? like four yeah his case was taken to conference and they thought they were actually might were going to have to operate at that time so you know they, they presented at conference but they decided against it and they decided to wait and over the last two years we, then after that we actually switched him back to a ketogenic diet he was he w- he's been pretty good for the mo- like majority of his life like yeah, he he's mostly because he started off paleo and then he had like a little two maybe two year break there where he was kind of eating garbage food but um but yeah we've been going back and over the last two years the cardiologist has told us that he may no longer even need surgery even though that was something that was going to be a given all these years and he continues to grow off the charts and he isn't symptomatic so can you maybe speak to any of the possible mechanisms that maybe you know eating this way and eating a ketogenic diet and you know we're not super strict with them they're like more paleo but definitely fat fueled kids um Mm. and how this could you know be helping him with his condition and improving his his life yeah i I just think that you know when we're burning fat for fuel, when we're using the ketones and everything, your heart's just more efficient and we're not going to be making, you know, that, that, that lactic acid, which is going to distract things. So I think that, you know, a study that I think of, they did this, this, um, study called the hundred marathon study where they took all these men that had run a hundred marathons in their life. And yeah. And, um, and I, I wish they had looked at how, you know, if there was any of them that were in ketosis versus the ones that weren't, but they didn't. Um, but I, I imagine since the, you know, the trend in running is to carb load and things like that, that many of them were not. And, you know, all of them had intense scarring of the heart. Um, and the ones who trained the hardest and the longest, um, had the, the most scarring. And I think that, you know, the, just like exercise is, is a, a stress on our muscles and we get this, you know, we, we burn glucose to, to do things faster and um the heart will do that too if we're stressing it like that like during marathons and things and i think that that causes damage just like we get you know knots in our muscles from from using them a lot and scar tissue that way we get scar tissue in the heart and i think that um it's it's when we're when the heart is forced to 
um, burn more glucose than it wants to. Um, so providing it with those ketones is going to result uh, not only in more efficiency, but also less lactic acid and hydrogen ion buildup, which is going to cause less damage. And now we have healthier, more functional skeletal muscle or cardiac muscle. Um, and so I think that that's playing a role. But then the other side of it is it's something we may not have time to talk to talk about today. But <laughs> it, the idea that, you know, just I was talking about Dr. Pollock earlier and how he says his graduate student is has proven that um, this fourth phase water does um, um, happen in the, the lining of the arteries. And the, the one thing that that does is that it protects the lining of the arteries uh, to an extent. Uh, but the other thing is that it, it drives blood flow. So, you know, Dr. Pollock found that you can put a, a hydrophilic tube inside this water that's holding energy because water can hold energy and the water will just begin to flow through the tube, um, you know, as a kind of a downstream process, no pun intended, um, part of the formation of this, this exclusion zone water, this fourth phase water. And so, you know, I, I've also written a blog post recently and I've talked about how the heart is not a, a true pressure propulsion pump. Um, oh, yeah. And how the physics one. of that kind of thing just doesn't make sense. And if you look at how the heart uh, is formed like a vortex and, and, and its true role, um, it's not necessarily to, to forcefully pump the blood like a pressure propulsion pump would. If we look at the efficiency of cardiac muscle, there's a study on this. Um, you know, if we look at the efficiency of a cardiac muscle as a pressure propulsion pump, it's only like 15 to 30% efficient. So if that was the heart's true job, it's pretty crappy at it. <laughs> um, you know, so so that what's what's really driving blood flow, and there's a few different things, I think. I think the pressure that the lungs create and the breathing, that helps drive blood flow um, because when we lose uh, pressure in our lungs, like a pneumothorax, um, there's this, I found this study that shows that we get a 60, 66% drop in uh, cardiac output. Um, due to loss of that pressure. But then also this this fourth phase water, because our blood is almost half water, um, is also driving the flow uh, of the blood. And so, you know, when we're talking about like, you know, your son who's got this this um, defect that's where it could be more stenotic and, and interfere with, with blood flow and efficiency like that, the really important thing is to make sure that the, the water in his body is energized. And so the way we do that is um, um, radiant light. So sunlight or infrared saunas are huge, um, grounding, um, being in contact with the earth will energize it, but also, you know, potentially a structured water device that you can structure the water that he drinks. We have um, that, that at Ben's gym. So do. yeah, like those things are, are huge, I think. I mean, um, I mean, he, if he's eating meat in it, if he's eating meat uh, raw, I don't know if he is, but if, if he ever has, then he's probably getting some structured water from the cells of, of that animal. It's probably less structured than it would have been if it, you know, came directly from the animal to his mouth. But, um, but yeah, those are all different ways that you want to, you want to create that energy because, Another way that we we energize water is we vortex it, which is why the, the heart is is shaped in a, in a helical vortex like fashion. Why it looks more like a football than a basketball. Um, and there's an amazing video on YouTube called the helical heart. Oh um, yeah, about that you about, shared that right? That was the one. Yeah, that you shared? I, I shared a, oh, a yeah. section of it. Yeah, um, but the the video is like 30 minutes, and that the the work of uh, uh, that guy uh, Torrent Quasp is his name, I think. Um, and and he showed how the the orientation of the muscle fibers are so that the heart vortexes and and contracts in a spiral like motion. I mean, it's, it's vortexing the blood. Um, and doing that in the presence of oxygen, uh, is what energizes the water. That's what Dr. Pollock found. And so I think it's no mistake that, that, you know, we have one, um, vortex system, um, that sends the blood to the oxygen, the system that oxygenates the blood and then back to the heart again for another round of vortexing. And then it goes out to tissues. Um, that, that is amazing. That is groundbreaking. Someone actually messaged me about this. Like, have you seen this? And I was like, yeah, I saw it yesterday and we're actually 
actually having him on. So trust me, we're going to talk about it. So like people yeah. are noticing, man, it's really cool that you've found some very, um, obviously, it's great to have people spreading the same message, but you have some really unique takes on this stuff. So thank you for that, man. And, and um, if you're ever in Tampa, you got to you got to come visit because we have my friend's gym where I, it's basically my office. We have a biocharger. We have a nano V. We have a structured water device. We have a bunch of stuff that you can <laughs> yeah. geek out on. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like a good time. That is a good yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> where everybody like you come out. Everybody's zen. Everybody's just, so zen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so where where can people find you online and where can they find more information like your books? Because you have an ebook also. and Yeah. And anything else you're working on? Yeah, um, my website is resourceyourhealth.com, uh, and that's where there's links to my books on there. But the books are also on Amazon, and I have two with the Health Evolution, and then I have a smaller or shorter ebook called The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood Organ. Uh, but like I said, I'm working on a much uh, uh, an unabridged version of that. Um, and then I'm on, um, uh, well, I guess on my website, there's also, that's where I do my health coaching um, and my blog and things like that. Uh, and then I'm also on social media, somewhat reluctantly, but I'm there and it's, it's helping. But <laughs> yes, it's it on Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram at uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, just Dr. Stephen Hussey. Thank Got you so it. much. It was, it was our so pleasure to have you on. on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.